Walker's voice. And then he's got Earnshaw. And old Jack Quinn just throws his glove in there. Well, I suppose, as long as we can't see it, we'll have to watch the scoreboard do the next best thing. Give three cheers, that little old red ball rolling around there. <laughs> well, maybe we get it next year. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new edition of Thinking Aloud about film. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And today we return to a film foundation screening, a restoration of Tay Garnett's Her Man. So, Richard, what did you think? Really enjoyed it. Uh, it's, um, so it's a pre-code film, although it's from that period when the production code existed, but everyone was kind of ignoring it. And it's, it's very, very pre-code. You know, it's all about hookers and sailors and hanging around with hookers in uh, bars in Cuba and, and uh, pickpockets and murderers and thieves. Yeah, I thought, I thought it was great. I kind of had more mixed feelings in the sense that I saw it twice because I saw it last night and I was a bit tired and I was drifting in and out and I thought actually that the film didn't have enough to keep my attention when I was tired. And then I saw it this morning and there are many things I think are just dazzling about it, but I still have reservations about it as a film. It's more an interesting film in what it tells us about the cinema of a particular period than in its own right, if you know what I mean. When you read up on this film, apart from the pre-code aspects of it and the, the, the way it evaded censorship, it's the, the camera work, which is, you know, because the received wisdom about early sound cinema is that because of the technology, the camera was very static, whereas in this, the camera is floating all over the place and there's some very, very impressive tracking shots and so on. It's uh, absolutely dazzling. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, one can't emphasize that enough. I think it would be dazzling all the way up to the 50s, really, until mm. new, uh, more mobile uh, cameras and Steadicam and so on came yeah, along. Yeah, yeah. You know, the type of shots that you see here must have been so incredibly difficult to realize. What really pleased me is there's a little video by Martin Scorsese on the Film Foundation website, which is an extract from his personal journey through American cinema. The two bits he raves about were the same two bits I thought were great. So, <laughs> so well done, Martin, you're, you're correct. I was also incredibly impressed by the back projection, right? So it's got all of these scenes of, you know, Havana, right? And uh, the protagonist kind of move in uh, this horse and carriage through the streets of Havana. And, yeah, you know, you're yeah. to see kind of what Havana was like in, in the 1930s. And actually, that impressed me very much, right? Because I think the film, in an odd way, through that back projection, also works as a kind of document. I, I, this is like documentary footage in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a very good article about it by Matthew Sorrento from, from 2017. And he, he gives all sort of backgrounds about about the censorship of it, about how it got through the production code. Uh, but yeah, the, the Cuba scenes, Garnet got funding to go and film those scenes in Cuba. But the cost was shared by another film, Woody Van Dyke's The Cuban Love Song. He went and filmed location for back projection for both films. And then the, the footage was used in other films as well later on. So very, very economical way of doing it. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> All of that stuff is really impressive because what you get in the film, you know, which is now almost 100 years old, 
is a picture of the way that cities were even in the 1920s. A lot of the scenes in Her Man take place where you would um, park your horse. So those things kind of coexisted with cars and yeah, the streets with dirt and cobblestone and kind of people had to walk through planks to get into yeah, the yeah. thalia, the, the bar. So that's almost like extra textual or paratextual. It's not what the film is about. But actually, it's, it's one of the things that I found most interesting about the film. I imagine that the primary reason why it was set in Havana is because prohibition still existed. So you can't have all those ballroom brawls and drinking and alcoholism and so on. I mean, you could have the prostitution bit, right? But you couldn't have it with alcohol. You, you say prostitution, but again, according to the director, they weren't actually prostitutes. <laughs> this, I think, is interesting in terms of how people treated the production code at that early period there's no way you can watch this film and interpret those women as being anything other than prostitutes but there's nothing in the script that says they're prostitutes no they're, they're dance hall girl. girls they're yeah. dance hall girls and it's very you know, there's nothing to say they're they're being paid for sex That's um, right. but they clearly are being paid for sex it's nonsense to say that these women are not prostitutes i mean it clearly conveys it but actually it still cannot say it and so you know that's one of the interesting things about what we call the pre-code that in fact were actually produced within the code, within a code anyway, you know, that it still could not be said. So, you know, these bad girls, they're bad because they're taking advantage of men, but they're doing it by picking their pockets and getting them to buy drinks and so on. The sex bit, which is highly connoted, I mean, it's very clear that uh, Johnny's a pimp. It's never stated and it's never referenced to sex itself. It's always to, you know, other, uh, in quotation marks, bad behavior. Yeah. The other thing is that the... Uh, the censors were concerned that, that it implies that Frankie, the dancehall girl stroke prostitute, and Johnny, the not her pimp, who is clearly her pimp, it implies that they live together. But the, their, the director's response was, no, 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 they don't live together. Because the scene where they go into her bedroom, she's the one who has the key to the bedroom, and he keeps his hat on. Uh. <laughs> it was his, if it was his house, he'd take his hat off. <laughs> you know, those are some of the things that I think are worth reminding ourselves when we talk about pre-codes that yeah. there's still a code uh, and you could you know not be uh, as clear about certain types of human behavior as films made elsewhere which were absolutely yeah. frank about those things yeah, yeah. Um, now can you tell us the story a little bit it's based on the frankie and johnny song yeah it, it kind of is based on the frankie and johnny song although it doesn't really have much to do with the song we're in havana as we've said Frankie is a, a young dancehall girl, which means prostitute. There's also an older dancehall girl, which also means prostitute, who met, apparently in an early version of the script was Frankie's mother, uh, which might be vaguely implied still. They're both working in this dancehall. Johnny is the pimp for both of them. The routine is they attract men to this bar. They buy drinks and the women are drinking water. The men are either drinking a lot of alcohol or they're being given Mickey Finns to knock them out. They're then being pickpocketed. A young blue-eyed sailor with an amazing close harmony singing voice <laughs> turns up and he and Frankie fall in love. Can he redeem her? Will they get together? Do we know who dubbed him or whether he was dubbed? I, I don't know that. No. Yeah, because it's too good a singing voice to... Oh, definitely, yeah. <laughs> well, all three of them, he, him and his two sailor friends have a very, very good improvised close harmony routine which clearly is some very professional singers 
I haven't had much of an opportunity to read much about the film, but I did read a New York Times article. You know, people seem to go mad about Hell and Twelve Trees, which I'm actually less impressed by. So the, the New York Times went crazy over Hell and Twelve Trees, thought that Marjorie Rambeau, the older prostitute, was hammy and theatrical, and barely mentions Philip Holmes. And actually, you know, when I saw Philip Holmes in that, you know, opening scene singing, it's like, I thought, my God, he's so gorgeous. <laughs> like, I yeah, mean, it was yeah. like, wow. And I thought Marjorie Rambeau was very good. So clearly theatrical, right? But actually theatrical in a way that to me conveyed the, the, the meaning and feeling of the scene. She's acting in a different way, but I think very effectively and, and rather touching. And Helen Twelve Trees, I liked also very much. But I thought she was quite false in a lot of her big moments. Uh, again, you know, she's obviously been coached. You get a sense that she's doing the accent and she's doing the various registers, but it's slightly by rote, something yeah. that's learned rather than something that explodes with feeling or, you know. Yeah, the first five, ten minutes of the film, there's this lengthy sequence which just focuses on the older prostitute. You know, this is long thing of this boat arrives in America and she gets gets off the boat and is told, oh, we don't want your type here. You haven't got a passport. They put her back on the boat. The boat takes her back to Havana. She arrives back in the bar. You see the whole milieu of the bar. And all this goes on and before you're actually introduced to Helen Twelve Trees. I have no idea what Helen Twelve Trees looked like. So I thought I, I kind of assumed watching that start of the film that this was the main character. I really like that structure. I think it's kind of essential. Because, you know, here you have, like, this middle-aged woman, again, trying to make a new life for herself. So, you know, and the film creates this thing where New York, the U.S., is the real world. Cuba is party land. It's the red light, it's the red light district of America. You have this middle-aged woman who's trying to escape, and you get a sense that it's not her first time trying to do it. Shipped back. And then the film begins this whole thing with the shoes. Yeah, so there's there's a motif of the shoes and what shoes signify and broken shoes and stockings come into it with holes in them. And, yeah, and in that opening sequence, one of her heels is bent. And so she's walking in this bent way back to Cuba. And of course, it's essential because that is what the film tries to show you that Frankie needs to escape. The whole thing then is about Frankie succeeding where possibly her mother did not. Philip Holmes, I thought, was a little bland, really. He doesn't quite look um, grizzled enough to be this sort of rough sailor he's supposed to be, you know. That's um, true, that's true. But I thought he was very, because I've seen him before in Broken Lullaby and so on, and can barely remember him in that. And in this one, I thought, my God, he's a star, he's got sex appeal, you know. Yeah. Do you uh, know the scandal about Philip Holmes? No, I don't. So the scandal about Philip Holmes, which I, I, again, I didn't know about, just reading up on him yesterday, he was driving the car with May Clark, was the, was the passenger, who's the uh -huh, woman uh -huh. who, who gets the grapefruit in her face in, yes. the, the, in um, whichever Jim Kelly Public, public enemy. And the car crashed, and she, got, she had facial in, injuries, which apparently ruined her, her acting career. And she then sued Philip Holmes because he was apparently, he may or may not have been drunk. Um, and they, it was all settled out of court. So, oh, right, yeah. okay. I think the reason why we don't know him better is because he died so young. Yeah, I think he's one of the people who actually died in the war. Uh, I thought he was very 
good is maybe the wrong word because you, you don't get the sense of him necessarily being a great actor or whatever. But just very beautiful to look at and very charismatic. Yeah, he, he's, he's always doing something and he's always doing something interesting. And, it, you know, and it comes across as true. Whereas I thought that Helen Twelve Trees, who's got more speeches. I mean, there's a bit where she waves him away in the boat. And you could tell that it's been so rehearsed. She waves, and then she's sad, <laughs> and then she's heartbroken, and then she, you know, is brave in spite of it. I mean, every move is yeah, like, you yeah. know, so fake, really. Now, I don't want to diss her because, I, you know, I thought she was, she was also kind of good. I mean, she was enjoyable to see. But I think, you know, there's a reason why she didn't become a, a big star. And that's also obvious in this film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, One of the interesting things about this film is, is that the, you know, there really aren't any big stars in it. I mean, that pre-code season that Cinema Rediscovered had was largely, okay, here's the, here's the Jimmy Cagney film, here, here's the Ginger Rogers film, you know, which clearly gives people a bit of an entry into those films. But this one, you know, you, clearly people who really know their pre-codes know who these people are. But for the average film viewer, there's, there's no kind of hook into it of a, of a future big star. Which is quite interesting, because, uh, but but clearly it's a big budget film for the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah, a the, very the, big budget film. The scale film. of it is is you know, in terms of the number of people in, in some of those scenes and the the complex fight scenes and stuff. I wanted to talk about that because you know it's one of those things that make you think about what cinema was and what cinema's become, right? And in this film, you always feel the social in the frame. And the reason why you feel the social in the frame is because the frame is always people. You always have 30 people, and then it becomes five people in the close-up, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. It's very rare that you get a two-shot or a close-up. I was watching The Equalizer 3 yesterday, and like most of the shots are shots of individuals. And even, even when they're in a fight, it's two people. In this film, you very regularly have 50 people in the frame. Yeah, you yeah. Know, even when there's a dialogue scene between two people, there's ten others for the, the big fight scene at the end. Apparently, obviously there was there was stuntman there, but he also brought in like college football players yeah, for yeah, the yeah. opposing side of the fight. And so there's huge numbers of people. And apparently, the, you know, the health and safety was different in those days because you know what they what they did was they had a couple of hospital beds ah. there with some doctors just to because sort of, people kept getting injured. Apparently, it was the football players that kept getting injured because the stuntman knew what they were doing. Ah. <laughs> I thought what was interesting about that was also that you see. Kay Garnett's now as a director because clearly what happens is you know they build this big extensive set and then like the last sequence is all about dismantling it breaking it apart in the bar right? <laughs> well, I also thought that what you see about Garnett is you know his training in comedy you know he'd been involved with Hal Roach and Lauren Hardy and so on and the film is it's got a whole series of running gags right the one with the hat yeah, yeah. Franklin Pangborn comes in and says, oh, I spent $20 on a hat. Well, it must have been a weekly salary in, you know, 1930. Then you have a, this whole extended routine with the hat. But actually, I think there's two extended routines. One with the money and the, uh, the slot machine, you know, and the other one with the hat. And it's played throughout the film in all kinds of variations, most of which work. It does begin to get tiresome after a while. But actually, most of them work. You can see how yeah, the gag yeah. has worked out. Yeah. And, and there's some very good visual comedy. I mean, at the beginning, the, the scene where they're coming off the boat, there's a guy, he's about to get off the boat, he waves at his wife, shows her the bag of souvenirs he's got, but then drops the bag off the side of the boat. And this is all going on kind of in the background while Marjorie Rambo 
is getting off the boat and you're focused on her. But in the background, there's the guy who's kind of lost his bag and he scuttles off the boat and he's like diving off the pier trying to get his bag and stuff. And it's, it's very, very, very well done. Just this kind of incidental sight gag. I think we should make more of the song because, you know, it was a hugely popular song. And actually, you could see how the film is based on it. Except, of course, it gives the lovers a happy ending, which is... Frankie and Johnny are the prostitute and the pimp, not the prostitute and the lover. That's so, in, and in the in the song, Frankie kills Johnny. I mean, she, that, that's not quite what happens in the film. It's interesting they use that as the basis for it, but it's not that close to the song. But the song is woven throughout the film. I'm just trying to connect it to larger issues because radio was still new in 1930, right? So this whole thing about music and the influence of music and where recordings were at that point. And I mean, you get the feeling in this film that part of the reason that so many of the films in this period have songs is because songs were an attraction, that songs were not easily available. Well, it's perhaps worth, worth saying a bit more about the style of it and just all these kind of long moving camera shots, which are really, really impressive. The, the one that Scorsese picked up on, there's a scene in the bar where they order two, two gins for, for Frankie and on one of the marks. And the barman is shown, you know, filling one glass with water and one glass with, with gin and then puts them on a tray and the waiter carries the tray through the crowd. And, it, and the camera is kind of following the tray and focused on the tray in this big scene with all the you know, 50 people or whatever. And the tray keeps kind of spinning round and turning, but you never lose focus of which, which glass is which. It's very well done. And so you, it's all in a single shot. So when he then places the glasses in front of the two people you're you're 100% clear that one's water that one's gin and it's then reversed later on because Frankie later on swaps the glasses around to avoid uh, her her, her lover getting getting the Mickey Finn it would have been a really difficult shot to do then it would have been a really difficult shot to do as you say in the the 50s uh... and the film is full of them right so obviously you know you've picked on that example but the film has a whole series of tracking shots the scene with Marjorie Rambeau running after Philip Holmes yeah, on the street. You know, that's an incredible tracking shot. The, the film is very, very fluid. It's actually a, a, such a really interesting film because, you know, on the one hand, it's almost like one extended barroom brawl full of jokes conveyed through this really very mobile camera with, at the heart of it, this very grimy, exploitative kind of set of relationships you know and a very romantic attitude to them so you know it is a very fascinating film for all kinds of reasons yeah yeah the, the other thing that's worth mentioning i think is that the opening credits are very unusual i thought because it, it's the it, all of the credits are, are written in sand and then get washed away by by the sea but there's no music and that that felt for the time a very unusual approach not not just the visual but the fact that, that all you hear is the sea I'm glad you reminded me of that because one of the things that caught my eye is that the film has almost no uh, non-diegetic music. Yeah, the music is always motivated. You, when you hear the music, you're in the bar and music is playing and someone's playing it. But in other dialogue scenes, of course, there's no music at all. So it's a very early sound film and those things have not yet been established and probably music was expensive, you know, and just again, just and scoring might have been, you know, at a different level at that point. But, uh, you know, it's certainly very noticeable, though not to the detriment of the film. I actually like those sequences of dialogue with no music at all. But I really like the way that the, the music 
and the lack of music was deployed. It felt kind of really purposeful. Yeah. Once again, thanks to the Film Foundation. There is a, a print of the film on YouTube. So if you come to this too late to actually watch the Film Foundation, you may want to look at that YouTube yeah. print. Which, although the, the YouTube print looks to be in slightly the wrong aspect ratio, I think, because this is early sound. It's the version we saw on Film Foundation was is sort of narrower than 4.3. I don't know exactly what it was. Uh, whereas the one on YouTube looks like it's presumably cropped to 4.3, but not a massive issue, probably only if you're a massive nerd like I am. We'd also just like to bring your attention to the Film Foundation screenings. You know, we'll put their link into the text that accompanies this podcast. And we hope uh, that some of you who haven't uh, uh, yet heard of this uh, will, will come to it. Uh, so in the meantime, thank you very much for listening. I'm Jose. I'm Richard. And we never like to fight. Right. So we always pal around with cops because we know they're right. Oh, let it storm. Let it rumble. We don't mind the waves that tumble. Do we drill a sauce sweet dizzy? All about a sea of blue. Do we like sweet male sopranos? Yes, indeed we do. <laughs>